Welcome, everyone, to the Southern Spoonful Podcast. We'll get to the show in just a moment. But first, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Southern Spoonful Podcast for behind-the-scenes photos, stories, and the latest news with the show. If you like what you hear, be sure to like, follow, share, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd greatly appreciate it. If you would be interested in sponsoring the show or placing an ad with us, then please contact us at the Southern Spoonful Podcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the show, everyone. So when did you know, what point, was there one defining moment that you knew you wanted to be a chef? Yeah, it, it was later in life, though, really. Uh, it was more so in college when I uh, needed to work for, for money and just found myself in a kitchen, in, in a commercial kitchen, and just really fell in love with the environment more so than the food. And then as I uh, evolved into better kitchens, I uh, or better restaurants, I should say, I really started to fall in love with the, the cuisine aspect of it. The flavor profiles, you know, growing up, I ate pretty much the worst things you could eat, chicken wings, burgers, uh, you know, everything that I still love to eat today, but I, I, I wasn't a healthy eating kid. <laughs> The voice you just heard was that of David Schlom. David is the founder and president of Virgil Cane Low Country Whiskey, located in Charleston, South Carolina. David is an accomplished chef, and not to mention, an all-around nice guy. We'll get back to the interview in just a few moments, but first, welcome to the Southern Spoonful Podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Southern Spoonful Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Hudson, and thank you for joining me today. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with David Schlom, founder and president of Virgil Cane Low Country Whiskey, located in Charleston, South Carolina. I'd like to begin by thanking David for the opportunity to conduct the interview. Trust me when I tell you, this episode is best paired with a glass of Virgil Cane ginger-infused bourbon or Robber Baron Rye Whiskey, both of which I happen to have on hand today, but we'll get to those soon enough. So please, find you a seat at the dinner table and prepare for a heaping helping from the Southern Spoonful podcast. Enjoy, everyone. Two of the most prominent Southern staples are, of course, its delicious food and most sought-after bourbon. David Schlom, founder and president of Virgil Cane Low Country Whiskey in Charleston, is no stranger to either. Along with Ryan Meany, Virgil Cane's CCO, David's business partner and friend, the duo have produced a line of spirits simple enough for front porch sipping but more than complex for any black tie affair. Recently, I had the opportunity to catch up with David to discuss food, the pandemic, and of course, good libations. Let's dig in. Hello, everyone. 
Welcome to the Southern Spoonful. I have the pleasure of joining me, remotely of course, accomplished chef and founder and president of Virgil Cane Low Country Whiskey, Mr. David Schlom. Welcome to the Southern Spoonful, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, David, I'd like to go ahead and get off all the controversial questions right out the way, if you don't mind. A few good icebreakers, if you will. So, to begin with, Dukes or Miracle Whip? Definitely Dukes. Understood, sir. Cornbread or biscuits? Uh, Depends on what I'm doing, but I I, I like them both. (laughs) Biscuits in the morning, cornbread with uh, dinner. (laughs) I can definitely handle that one. Vinegar-based, mustard-based, or ketchup-based? Uh, vinegar based. All right. I hear you. I like that. And final, Carolina or Clemson? Mm, Georgia. I, I had something told me you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but if I had to pick one of the two, I'd go with Carolina. I hear you. All right. Let's start at the beginning of all this. Uh, so you're originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So tell us what it was like for you growing up there. Uh, so I, I grew up outside of Atlanta in uh, kind of the suburbs of Norcross, and it was fun. Great, you know, uh, diversity of football players to hang out with to uh, the more rebellious kids. So, I, you know, I had a good mix of friends and, and had a good time and enjoyed things like, you know, skateboarding and, and, and fishing and, you know, it, it's a very diverse kind of uh, metropolis, if you will, and allows for a lot of different types of activities. So uh, it, was, it was a great place to grow up. Understood. Made some really good friends that uh, I still hold on to dearly and lucky to have. So when did you know, what point, was there one defining moment that you knew you wanted to be a chef? Uh, yeah, it, it was later in life, though, really. Uh, it was more so in college when uh, needed to work for, for money. And just found myself in a kitchen, in a commercial kitchen, and just really fell in love with the environment more so than the food. And then as I uh, evolved into better kitchens, I uh, or better restaurants, I should say, I really started to fall in love with the, the cuisine aspect of it, the flavor profiles. You know, growing up, I ate. You know, pretty much the worst things you could eat, chicken wings, burgers, uh, you know, everything that I still love to eat today. But I, I, I wasn't a healthy eating kid. <laughs> and I think that had a lot to do with just not, you know, being around great cuisine. You know, not many people I knew cooked farm to table or any of that aspect. And most of the time I was hanging out at the side of the house. And most of those people just raid in their uh, pantries for uh, <laughs> whatever they might have had. Most of the time, uh, SpaghettiOs or Lucky Charms or something of that nature. So, you know, when I got to college and I started working in some uh, better kitchens, I really started to fall in love with food and really got to be aware of uh, of, of culinary type of uh, of cuisine that was just you know mind blowing as far as flavor wise. And that's when I decided, you know, this environment is like hanging out with your friends. Doesn't seem like work at all. We get to create things that make people so happy and are so delicious. You know, all that seemed to add up to be the right uh, journey for me. And I couldn't agree more. You know, uh, food is one of those things that can bring people together. And depending on if you bring the same dish as somebody else, you know, to a family reunion, it might tear them apart. So (laughs) that's right. 
So did you have anybody particular like in your family that you kind of, I guess, um, were influenced by, you know, your mother and aunt or, or someone like that, that kind of kind of pulled you toward the kitchen, so to speak? My grandma actually uh, was pretty always in the kitchen. You know, when we had people over and think when she had people over, she was just always in the kitchen cooking multiple dishes at a time. And uh, I think, you know, her love and she would call me into the kitchen and tell me to go pick cement from outside and things of that nature. So I would say that from the the longest memories uh, would be my grandma, but it wasn't necessarily like I was inspired by it. I just saw that the love that she had in, in, in creating memorable experiences for people through food and just bringing joy to people through food. I thought that was pretty, pretty amazing. I understand. I completely get that. You know, being from the South myself, you know, I had to, your, your grandma sounds a lot like mine, you know, the same way she would send me outside. Cause I remember there was a right there by the spigot for the water hose. There was a little, a little, um, a little bit of mint that would grow right there for whatever reason, wouldn't grow anywhere else in the yard, but right there by the water hose. And yeah, you, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, exactly. definitely can relate with that. And also she was always trying to shove a piece of cornbread or uh, a piece of ham or something in my mouth all the time. So yes, definitely can understand that. Absolutely. So as far as your education goes, your culinary education, um, you attended the California Culinary Academy's Le Cordon Bleu culinary program, correct? That's correct. Okay. So just curious, you being from the South, and heading out to the West Coast, was that a tough adjustment for you? It was. Uh, well, it was a fun adjustment at first. I mean, uh, look, I, I, I fell in love with uh, cooking, and um, and I was on a very fast trajectory of, of education. I worked in as many kitchens as I could in Charleston <laughs> before leaving, and, um, and was at a restaurant called Hank's Seafood, and, right. and Chef Frank McMahon, who's a dear friend of mine today, he was kind of my first inspiration, you know, the first person I looked up to and just said, man, if I could be, you know, like this guy, you know, just have the love in food. He always used to say, just do it with love, you know, and, and you'll be good. And and so I, I admired him and I also looked up to him and, um, and, and I kind of asked for some direction and he said, you know, if you really love food, you really want to do this, you should get out of town and go somewhere else and, and, and learn. And so I took that as an opportunity to, to go to culinary school. But at mm-hmm. that point, you know, I was eager and I didn't want to spend four years in the culinary school or two years even. I wanted to find a culinary school somewhere out away from the home and kind of an accelerated program. So I found California on the map and San Francisco is obviously a big food hub. I said, that's where I got to go. It's a year long program. I can utilize it to make some new relationships out there and find some kitchens to work in. And I can learn a whole different style of cuisine um, that I can then one day bring back to the South. So I always knew I was coming back to the South. That was my intention of leaving. But it also allowed me to work in under some of the best chefs in the in the country in a very short period of time. So right, just as much as you took the South to the West Coast, was there anything other than your education, of course, that you brought back to the South with you? Something that maybe you picked up along your journey out west? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the the West Coast defined me as a chef, so to speak, when it comes to technique and and, and speed in a kitchen and and understanding mise en place and and understanding what a high caliber kitchen needs to be. You know, we I worked again for while I was out there. I probably worked for 10 different chefs while I was there in a short period of time of three years. And some of those chefs have gone on to be named best chefs or have the best restaurants in the world. It was just a different caliber back then. I mean, this is in 2005, so 2002, excuse me. So, I mean, this is still in the days of chefs screaming and and <laughs> and, uh, and and lines of people trying to take your job uh, because they want to be there. You know, it's kind of a different world now. Um, so, yeah, brought back a lot of technique uh, from molecular gastronomy to just uh, farm-to-table techniques, uh, you know, utilizing farmers, the mindset of uh, grabbing everything you can when you start your prep and, uh, it, it, you know, your list and doing things efficiently. So when I came back, I mean, I, I, I was put into some kitchens while I was looking to open my restaurant. And I just remember everybody saying, you can get here, you know, a couple hours early. And so I would in the beginning and I'd be done by three and dinner service didn't start until five. And <laughs> I was just like, shit, what do I do now? Um, And so I'd start helping others and things of that nature. And that cost got me in more trouble than I wanted because, you know, nobody wants help in a kitchen. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, you know, I I, I got a lot out of it. You know, Um, I really learned a lot and was happy to bring it back here. Awesome. So since you brought it up, molecular gastronomy, um, for our listeners, can you explain, can you kind of elaborate on exactly what that is? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Really, the use of avant-garde tools, technology, uh, and science to create food, in a sense. So whether you're sous vide cooking or you're utilizing uh, ingredients like methyl cellulose uh, that helps create or make uh, a warm gel, if you will. So if you think of jelly, just think of it in a warm warm aspect and, you know, just kind of utilizing new techniques and new kind of science to create cuisine in a sense understood all right so as a chef my next question is what is your favorite dish to prepare oh man that's that's the one that always stumps me you know because <laughs> it really just depends on the mood i'm in i mean right. I, a cuisine that i love and is dear to me is uh, is uh, Mexican cuisine and, and Asian cuisine just because, you know, it's harder to find that kind of stuff around here. Right. So I, I typically try to dabble in those cuisines. Um, but I, I, I couldn't tell you what's the best, you know, my favorite dish to prepare. I, I tell you my favorite, the easiest one to prepare that people seem to love the most is, is steak. You know, I feel like so many people mess up steak right. or go to go to a steakhouse and pay $90 or $60 for a steak when we can teach you the technique to cook it and make it perfect, just like a steakhouse at home for a fraction of the price. That That's one that I really enjoy to cook for friends and, and people because it's, it's, it's just everybody loves steak. Absolutely. Or most people. Yeah, I, I I'm definitely can speak to that. I, I love me a good steak, man. You just can't beat a good steak. You know, some mashed potatoes or some French fries, a baked potato, just, man, a good salad. Love a good salad. All right. Um. So with that being said, what's your favorite meal to eat? 
Oh, man, that, that's probably a pretty tough one as well. I love to eat everything. Uh, I love tacos. I like really good pizza. And I like a great hamburger. Oh, man. I think we're going to end up talking ourselves hungry. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> all right. So being a chef, what's that one thing? in your kitchen that you believe should be in every kitchen? Like what's the one thing you could not do without like that one kitchen item, that tool, that piece of equipment. Well, I'm going to try to be creative here. And uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously you can't go far without a knife or salt. Um, True. So you need those, but uh, one that I recommend everybody grab for your pantry is something called black garlic salt. Mm. And and just trust me when I say it, it's uh, fermented black garlic that is mixed with salt. And you just cook anything and use it as a, a seasoning salt at the end after you slice some steak or some pork or put that on there and you'll be in heaven. Black garlic salt. Yes, sir. I will definitely keep my eye out for that because I love trying new stuff like that. So definitely, definitely going to try and find that one. Please do. It's and I find it online only. but Really? Um, <laughs> yep. I got you. Moving away from the kitchen, so to speak, let's talk about your bourbon. What was going through your head when you guys first come up with the idea of, you know, leaving the industry, the kitchen industry, I'm sorry, the restaurant industry to take on the bourbon industry? Well, you know, it, it was an easy segue. I mean, right. uh, food and whiskey are, are are things that people consume, right? So right. It's, it's the same mentality. It's how do we make something that somebody loves that is very familiar to them, but bring it to them in a new and exciting way. So whiskey was just another ingredient to me. And the thing that most made the most sense being from the South is, exactly. is delivering ginger-infused bourbon because of the, the amount of people that enjoy enjoy uh, bourbon and ginger ale here you know it was right. like how do we uh, take out those ingredients that are not good for people and replace them with the real ingredients that are good for people so right. um, it, was, it was a pretty easy segue though it, it seems like a risky one it seemed pretty natural right um, now I actually heard you talk about this one one time before, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And this is just for our listeners. And I thought you did a pretty good job of it. But can you tell us the difference between bourbon and whiskey and possibly walk us through the process? Yeah, of course. Um, well, the easy thing to, to recognize is, you know, all bourbons are whiskey and not all whiskeys are bourbons. So the category is whiskey. And under that category, you have several different kinds of whiskeys. So you have scotch, you have bourbon, you have rye whiskey, you have Irish whiskey, and you have American whiskey and Canadian whiskey. So if you look at whiskey as the, the general category, then you can start placing those items in there that I just mentioned. Now, uh, what makes a bourbon, what makes bourbon bourbon and a rye rye is, is the amount of, of uh, I mean, there's a lot of things, but the big things are the mash bill. So uh, bourbon is predominantly corn, so it has to be 51% corn or more, and it has to be aged in American oak. And rye whiskey is uh, the flip side of that. That's, it has to be 51% rye whiskey right. or rye in the mash bill to be classified as a rye whiskey if i'm correct virgil uh, virgil cane outsources their bourbon is that correct that's correct okay now can you tell me is there any one distillery you get it from or is this like a collection i can tell you that our base whiskeys come from mgp which is in indiana They've been making whiskey for over 100 mm-hmm. years, and, 
and you'll see their stuff uh, in a lot of whiskeys. And it's a, just a, a consistent, solid product. They actually sit on one of the largest natural aquifers in the country. Um, so the water is super delicious that they start with. Just great whiskey. So Absolutely. reliable source. Okay. So then it's brought to Charleston to be blended by you guys, right? Correct. Okay. So what about your ingredients that you actually um, use to, you know, blend the whiskey? Is that, um, are those ingredients, are they locally sourced? They are, yeah. Our ginger comes directly from uh, a friend of mine, John Warren, on John's Island from Spade and Clover Gardens. Uh, he grows a, a delicious varietal of ginger every year. It is close enough to me where I have the pleasure of driving out to the farm myself and picking it up and sometimes getting my hands in there and, uh, and picking a couple sprouts myself. But uh, usually I let I let him know I'm coming and we'll, we'll have some whiskey and uh, I'll exchange some bottles with him of, of something new that we've worked on and, and, uh, and grab some whiskey and, and uh, I mean, grab some ginger and off to the off to production i understand so just curious how long did it take you guys to actually find that perfect blend of a bourbon and the ingredients that you used that you knew you wanted to put in a bottle and sell uh i think it, it took us about six seven months of trial and error i mean over 25 different samples uh, <laughs> i got you or, or tries to get it perfect Understood. All right. So in your opinion, which is the, uh, out of your lineup, the Virgil Cane lineup, which is the best to drink neat? Uh, best to drink neat, I would say most likely the rye or the ginger. Okay. Now, see, I, I love a good rye. I'm a, I'm a big fan of rye myself. I love rye. Um, and obviously any of our limited time offerings, I mean, those are just uh, hands down delicious, especially our the newest one, the Ribbon Rail Rye. I mean, that's just if uh if any of our uh my local uh abc stores around here could keep it on the shelf <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh which one is uh the best that you think for a cocktail uh, again i'd say probably the rye or the bourbon would be probably right. the best for cocktails okay just curious which is your personal favorite Right now, I would say the ribbon rail rod, just because it's the the closest uh, or the you know the the most recent one we've released. Right now, is that the one that's actually finished in the the porter barrels? That's correct. Okay, that where does that porter come from? Uh, the porter is coming from our friends at Revelry Brewery. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah. I couldn't think of the name of the brewery, but I knew one of them, uh, the Ribbon Rail Rye, was actually finished in the port barrels. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And they're wonderful partners of ours, and they just, you know, are just a great brewery. All their beers are fantastic and just, just so easy to work with. I mean, I called them and said, hey, I've been wanting to put chocolate malt into a into a rye whiskey to balance out those cherry notes. Can you help me? And they said, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, they went they they went a step beyond and, and and sourced some of the same you know barley and rye that we actually use in the in the bourbon itself or in the rye itself from the distillery uh, from MGP and. Uh, and, and made their their porter utilizing those those ingredients. Understood. So no hesitation on their end whatsoever. Uh-oh. Understood. 
All right. And uh, so just curious in the times we live in now, um, how has the pandemic changed the way that you guys do business, uh, if at all? Well, it's changed a lot. You know, during the pandemic, we we feel for our restaurateurs and our partners um, that we consider partners. Every restaurant that ever used our product, we consider a partner. And, uh, we feel a lot for them. So try to support where we could, but really just staying out of their way, you know, right. we used to bang on doors on a daily basis on restaurants and, and bars and talk to them about making cocktails and this and that, and this junction of their, uh, in their situation where they're at 30% capacity and sometimes 50% capacity, you know, we, we understand that they're, their businesses are, are struggling and they're struggling. And so because of our price point, uh, we didn't want to put much pressure on them to hey, buy our stuff. You know, we wanted them to stay in business. So we tried to stay out of their hair and, and let them kind of figure it out on their own, how, how they needed to survive and whether that was using $15 well bourbon or $12 rye. I mean, Whatever they need to do to survive, we wanted them to explore those options and, and not have us in their, in their face. So how it changed our day-to-day activities is we, we stayed out of the, our, you know, the places we loved the most, which were restaurants and bars as far as you know, on a working basis. And, and instead of working, we were mo- mostly supporting through eating and, and, and just showing face and smiling and letting them know that they have a friend. Absolutely. Just people helping people. And and I, I like that, you know, and that's one of the things that I kind of wanted to showcase on here on this show was how people from the South, you know, and how they, you know, they're they're he- they're not hesitant at all to to lend a helping hand no matter what the crisis or you know what what the circumstances are and you know that's 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 large. Uh, you don't find that too much in the business anymore in any business. I agree. I agree. So just a last question here. What does the future hold for Virgil Kane? Uh, the future holds uh, some good things. We recently just uh, started a partnership with Grain and Barrel Spirits, and uh, they're going to help us to expand the brand nationally. They're also going to, because they get to focus on uh, on the heavy lifting of distribution, we get to focus on making some new new flavors for people to try. So we're very excited on on uh, recreating some favorites of ours and and expanding what we call the Chef Series, which the ginger is, is under. Um, so looking forward to uh, releasing a couple new flavors in the next, couple new infusions, I should say, in the next six months and uh and continuing to have having some fun in the category i got you that sounds amazing you guys are on track i mean that that's great and one last question i just actually thought about it but where'd you get the name virgil kane yeah so virgil kane actually is referenced in some historical you know some songs and some areas but the main thing about virgil kane was that he was he was a person that grew up in the in a confederate kind of household in the south and even though his his family bared arms with with the confederacy he had a different view on on the situation and and, right. and, and instead of you know joining the confederacy and, and fighting the north he instead you know found work on trains during the civil war and doing things of that nature and and, and kind of stood up for his beliefs and, and when we and so that's very honorable and that's very you know risky 
for a person that is was in the South at that time, you know, they could have been, yeah, ostracized, kicked out family, whatnot. So, you know, it's just an inspiration to us. When we started uh, this company in 2011, when we first started the Ginger Infused Bourbon, to much of us are surprised, there were a lot of, the, the majority of the market were traditionalists and conservatives, and they didn't want you to alter whiskey in any shape, form, or fashion. You know, they, right. and so for us to go ahead and infuse bourbon and call it a sipping whiskey and infuse it with ginger, <laughs> uh, extremely frowned upon. And right. I remember the food writers back then and the people like, are you sure you <laughs> you want to do this? And I said, heck yeah. You know, we got to do what we believe is uh, is the right thing. So, so if Virgil King could do something as as honorable and, and, and defiant <laughs> in his day, stand right. up for something that he believed in, we could easily do something with whiskey and, and do what we believe in. So that's kind of, he's an a inspiration to us to, to follow your uh, your heart and, and do what you think is right. Yeah, go against, sometimes you got to go against the grain. Uh-huh. Well, well, David, I think that's going to about wrap it up today. I can't thank you enough for being here on the show. And uh, you guys, uh, you want to give a, you want to give a plug for anything, David? Your website, maybe? Uh, sure. I mean, please follow us. You know, at Virgil Kane on Instagram, you'll you can uh, find what we're up to and see what events that we'll be part of once this this COVID uh, pandemic is behind us and, and, you know, follow that to, to find out where we are and what we're doing. We're up to some cool things and pretty soon we'll, we'll start to share that with you guys. So. Absolutely. All right, David, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Have a great one. Welcome everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Schlom from Virgil Kane. Uh, he's a very cool, very interesting guy, and I enjoyed having the opportunity to speak with him. I have in front of me, as promised, I have a bottle of Virgil Kane ginger-infused bourbon. It says ginger-flavored bourbon whiskey, 40% alcohol by volume, 80 proof, 750 milliliter. Also have another bottle of Virgil Kane product. Virgil Kane Robber Baron Rye Whiskey, 45.5% alcohol by volume, 91 proof. Uh, so I'm going to be taste testing these today. And so we'll go ahead and get into it, literally. Oh, you got to love that. I'll be pouring into a Glen Cairn glass. Just enough. Uh, these are both at room temperature. And that's the way I like them, if I am pouring them neat. Uh, every now and again, I will or may add a little bit of ice to kind of help water it down, maybe even bring out some more of those flavors. So I'll give it a little swirl, and let's see what the nose smells like. Immediately, you're getting a hint of that ginger. It's not overbearing. It's not too much. It's rather... I'm trying to think of the words that come to mind. There's a little bit of alcohol. You're getting that alcohol burn, but it's not, like I said, uh, it's 80 proof. It's not very, it's not very much. It's not, it's not overkill. Vanilla and caramel, almost like a butterscotch. A little bit of leather. 
almost a hint of, uh, I know this sounds crazy, it, sound, it smells like sweet tea. Now we're going in for a taste. Wow. It's very warm going down, as most alcohols are. Just holding it up to the light here, it, uh, it, it's, it's dark, of course, but it's not overly dark. Uh, I know I've said, used that word quite a bit so far, but it's really not. It does have a bit of a discolored water color to it, but it's weird. I'm almost tasting sweet tea. Yeah, it tastes like um, some of those flavors that I'm getting throughout. I'm not really tasting a whole lot of ginger. It's like I said, it's not overbearing by any stretch of the imagination. However, it it smells like sweet tea. And of course, this could, you know, this varies from person to person. It's very, it's very tasty. You know, I like a good bourbon, a good whiskey. And this is, this is very tasty. Yeah, I could definitely get into this bottle for sure. This is, this is nice. I'm not going to joke. And I can only imagine the number of cocktails that can be made with this. And see, once you get past those first couple of sips, that alcohol is gone, which is the case in most whiskeys. Yeah, oddly enough, once again, I'm getting a lot of sweet tea flavors. Um, and what's odd about it is that I would have to say that if this were a glass of sweet tea, I would have to say that it was made or sweetened with brown sugar almost is another flavor profile that I'm kind of picking up in there is a little almost like a light brown sugar type taste. I like this. This is really good. That's good stuff. That's a great product and uh, that is something I will most definitely keep on my shelf. That is really good. Um, I, like I said, I can only imagine the number of cocktails that you can make with this. This is, this is really innovative. So now I'm going to jump over to the Robber Baron Rye Whiskey. And uh, I'm a sucker for a good rye. I like the spicier notes. Let's see if we can get that cork pop. Oh, yeah. And this one here is, of course, a little bit darker than the ginger-infused bourbon. And I love the fact... I love the fact that both of them on the cork has a little label that says proudly crafted in South Carolina. You can't go wrong with that. Sorry for all the noise, people. And this, of course, looking at it in the glass is uh, slightly darker than the ginger bourbon, ginger infused bourbon. On the nose, I'm smelling, getting a lot of that rye spice. And I'm getting a little small hint of alcohol, but not much. Yeah. Almost like, I don't want to, it's not, it's not a bad smell, but it's almost like, a, like that alcohol, like a fuel type scent. All right, let's go in for a taste. Okay. It's definitely ramped up in flavor as far as the spice goes. It is, you got those more prominent notes of 
almost like cinnamon and clove. Yeah, to the point where, and it's not just the alcohol, but where you can feel it tingling in your mouth. All right, let's go in for another sip. Definitely the, the alcohol flavor on this one is definitely lingering around a little bit more uh, compared to the ginger-infused bourbon. Uh, yeah, this one seems to a little, a little bit more harsh, uh, which I'm fine with. Uh, it's still very good. It's very tasty. Like I said, it leaves behind. Uh, I'm getting like cherry, a little bit of cherry, some a little bit of leather, just a hint of vanilla, and almost. And like I said, you're getting the it's it, it's very reminiscent of cloves. Uh, I don't remember. I don't know if you remember, but I don't know if you remember, but way back when I'm sure they still make them but I, it reminds me of the clove cigarettes it doesn't smell like that it and it doesn't taste like a cigarette okay but it, I'm getting those cloves you know and so it is it is pretty good I like that and once again I can only imagine the cocktails and drinks that you can make with this I would like to definitely try this in an old fashioned it's almost orange in color, but the flavor, there's a flavor in there. It's almost like citrus, like burnt citrus almost. Like, you know how the bartenders kind of take a slice and they squeeze it and get the essential oils out. And when they do, they light the match and it flames over the glass. That's kind of what I'm, that's kind of what I'm smelling. Yeah, that's nice. Very good product, both on both accounts. That's very good stuff, David. Keep up the good work. Uh, follow if you like what you heard, if you like, if you're interested in knowing more about Virgil Kane, you can uh, check them out on virgilkane.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at Virgil Kane. So that's going to wrap up today's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. And I hope you tune in again next week. And uh, who knows what the Southern Spoonful has in store. So take care, everybody. <music>